0: scripture go hand in hand? Aren't all scientists liberal and agnostics? What can we learn from science that would provide evidence for a creator? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith, Today on Evidence and Answers, let's listen to one of our breakout sessions taken from the 2017 Apologetics Conference held in Hawaii. Each year, Pat hosts this conference and brings out the best scholars, teachers, and authors to share in teaching and equipping you, the believer, to be able to share your faith effectively in our culture today. The theme was Demolishing Strongholds of Unbelief. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Listen as Dr. Leslie Wickman shares part one of her message entitled, Exploring the Wonders of Creation Through the Lens of Science.
1: ASA3.org, it's an organization for Christians that are interested in science. And it's a a national nonprofit. I encourage you to go to our website and check it out and maybe even become a, a member or a follower. Uh, We have lots of resources available there on uh, the connections between science and faith, including an academic journal called uh, Perspectives on Science and the Christian Faith. And we also have an annual summer conference that this coming year will actually be in Colorado, uh, July 28th through the 31st. There's more information on the resource uh, slash book table in the other building. So I encourage you to stop by the book table and take a look at some of the resources, go to the website and become a follower or a member. We're actually in the process of starting local chapters across the country and I'd absolutely love to see one get started here in Oahu. Um, So please talk to me afterwards if you might be interested in helping with that effort. So this talk is about how we can explore the wonders of God's creation using science. Now my interest in in space and science started at a very early age when my father would take us outside on clear starry nights to look at the stars and the moon and the planets uh, through his uh, telescope. And starry nights have always inspired me even as a young kid. I grew up in a Christian home and I came to faith at an early age and I always knew in my heart that God was the source of all this wonder that I was studying. As the psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. But I went to secular schools all the way from grade school on through grad school. And I heard over and over again in my science classes that what I'd be learning about science would almost certainly conflict with my faith. But in my heart, I knew that couldn't be true. Uh, if God was who he claimed to be in Scripture, the creator of the very universe that I was studying, then how could the truth about God possibly contradict the truth about his creation? It didn't make sense to me. So one of the biggest reasons that I enjoy teaching is because of my desire to help students wrestle through the issues and perceive conflicts between science and faith that I wrestled with, mostly on my own, uh, in secular universities and in the professional working world. Now the study of unanswered questions about nature was called natural philosophy until about 1600 AD. It was a precursor to natural science. It was simply the search for understanding through study of the physical world. And scientists today look at the world with curiosity, and curiosity makes us ask the questions about the world around us. Things like, why does the sun shine? Why is the sky blue? Uh, How old is the Earth? How are the planets formed? Why do things fall? What are things made of? And I'm sure that you can think of many others on your own. And even now, when I take students outside on a clear, starry night and we gaze at the heavens, we all start asking life's big questions. Questions such as, where did all this come from? How big is it? What's it all made of? How long has it been here? Was there anything before all this? Why are we here? Where are we going? How will it all end? And one of my students' personal favorites, is there anyone else out there? Now the early Greeks believed that nature can be understood, that it was not just randomly occurring phenomena and that the diverse behavior we observe in nature is held together in rational, orderly patterns. Now, Aristotelian thinking was kind of what this was known as, it prevailed from about 340 B.C. to 1600 A.D. And the Aristotelians used deductive reasoning, which led to these statements which were based on first principles, things that they considered to be obviously true, Such as, since the sphere is a perfect shape, the earth must be round. Another one was, since everything appears to go around us, then earth must be at the center of the cosmos. And then, since the heavens are the realm of the gods, the heavens are perfect and the earth imperfect. So these set of statements and these principles were um, called first principles and uh, associated with the Aristotelian worldview. But the early Greeks' use of deductive reasoning, which was very applicable to both math and philosophy, didn't work so well for observational science. Deductive reasoning starts with a few simple truths from which all theorems that logically follow may then be proven. But in this process, logic rules. But they were getting the wrong answers about the created order. The theorems of nature, that were deduced from Aristotle's first principles didn't match up with the observations that were being made by the early empirical scientists, such as Copernicus, Kepler, Brahe, and Galileo. So their collective observations indicated that not everything in the heavens was moving in perfect circles around the earth, and that the earth itself was moving, and that the heavenly objects were not so perfect themselves. So Galileo did a series of observations, you may remember from history, that showed that the moon was moving around the earth and that Venus was moving around the sun, not the earth, and that um, when he looked at the moon through his telescope, he could see that the moon was not perfectly spherical, that it had mountains and valleys and craters. So it was not perfect. So from this mismatch between deduced theorems and the empirical observations, inductive reasoning, which is parent to the scientific method, emerged. Simple truths about nature are really the goal of science rather than an unattainable starting point, as the Aristotelians wished it to be. Now, Isaiah 55.9 reminds us that we humans don't really know all that much about what God has created. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So inductive reasoning is kind of like the deductive process in reverse. We start with many observations of nature and move toward a few robust explanations of how things work. And in this process, rather than logic so much, observations rule. So from the early philosophers came the first scientists and in trying to understand the heavens in the 16th and 17th centuries, modern science was born. And it's nothing more than a rational way of observing, studying, and thinking about nature. And there are a handful of great thinkers listed on this slide who were instrumental in the development of this modern scientific method, and all of them just happened to be Christians. Now, scientists make observations and formulate hypothetical explanations. They make predictions, do experiments and create models or theories to answer questions. And this is all in an iterative process that we refer to as the scientific method. And the goal is to obtain a compelling explanation describing the observed phenomenon, which makes accurate predictions about the future and leads to a better understanding of the universe scientists try to understand the multitude of nature's attributes as resulting from the action of just a relatively small number of basic elements and forces acting in a seemingly infinite variety of combinations in other words scientists use the scientific method to try to simplify our understanding of the world and the way things work so the bible does not tell us to shy away from investigation For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.21 reads, Test everything, hold on to the good. And in a more relational passage, Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So the Bible does not tell us to hold back from exploring. So by way of a quick overview, we start with observations of a phenomenon, whether firsthand or documented by a previous scientist. Next comes the development of a hypothesis, where we wonder about the observations and invent a hypothesis or a tentative explanation which could explain the phenomenon or the set of facts that has been observed. Next, we use the logical consequences of the hypothesis to predict observations of a new phenomena or results or new measurements. Then we perform experiments to test these predictions to find out just which of our predictions actually occurred. And after that, we search for other possible explanations of the result until we can show that our hypothesis fits the evidence and is the best current explanation. Then we publish the results, and asking them to be reviewed by other independent scientists in the field. And finally, other scientists review the work and attempt to repeat the results. If the results are not reproducible, the original hypothesis is not verified, and weaknesses in the reasoning must be sought. It's very important to remember that science, by its very essence, doesn't prove anything. This is an important point. Science, by its essence, does not prove anything. Science may disprove certain theories, but instead, science is just looking for the best explanation given the evidence that we have so far. And this is an important point, inductive reasoning is not an ironclad, open and shut case. It's not the same as deduction, where you can logically prove something with if-then statements. Now, again, science is inductive and it's looking for the best explanation given the evidence that we have to date. Now, another interesting observation is that science arose in the region surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Michael Covington, who's a science writer, makes these points. Modern science arose in Christianized Western Europe. Jews, Christians, and Muslims all believe in a creator who made an orderly, rational, and understandable universe and gave us permission, as we saw in the scripture passages I just shared, to investigate and utilize it, thereby legitimizing science and technology. On the other hand, animists believe that rocks, trees etc things that we think of as inanimate objects actually have souls and that we shouldn't mess around with nature for fear of offending their spirits and most hindus and buddhists generally believe that the physical world is an illusion or a distraction that we should try to free ourselves of atheists can't even explain why it is possible for us to understand the universe The Judeo-Christian tradition promotes belief in a God who created an orderly, rational, knowable cosmos, who invites his creatures to investigate his creation, as seen in various passages of scripture. So God invites us to study his creation because this will reveal knowledge not only of nature, but also of who God is. And an important thing to note here is that we are obviously not called to a blind faith. We are called to a rational, reasonable faith for which there is a great deal of evidence. So for a moment, let's just talk about the nature of truth. Correspondence theory and philosophy states that truth is a matter of a belief or idea, a representation or a statement corresponding to reality. And this quote is from Dallas Willard. On the other hand, in the postmodernist view, true is merely a compliment we pay to statements we find good to believe. Truth is not a property by beliefs in virtue of some relation they bear to worldly facts that stand outside of discursive practices. Mm-hmm. That statement is by Richard Rorty. But I can't help but ask myself whether that last statement is actually true or simply good to believe. Right. So when it comes to science and faith, or science and theology, the search for order and meaning takes different forms. Science, on the one hand, is concerned with discovering and understanding natural phenomena, and the domain of science is the natural order. Science seeks to know how things are the way they are, not why they are that way, nor how they should be. Now, theology, on the other hand, is concerned with the source and the purpose and the meaning of everything, and the domain of theology is nature's purpose. I believe that science and theology complement rather than contradict each other. A lack of understanding about either field, either science or theology, can make people feel like they have to choose one or the other. But if you have a deeper and more complete understanding of each area, it enables us to embrace both without contradiction. After all, as uh, Francis Bacon and Galileo stated, God is the author of two books, both creation and scripture. And as St. Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And further, King David wrote in Psalm 19:1, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands." So if we can just start with the notion that absolute truth exists about both God on the one hand and nature on the other, then we have to agree that those absolute truths cannot logically contradict each other. Okay? So all truth is God's truth. Truth cannot contradict itself. So the more we correctly understand about each field will give us a better understanding of the whole picture. Now our paths as individuals and as society to truth about God and truth about nature are iterative. In other words, we might take a couple of steps forward and then a corrective step backwards. And we see this throughout scientific history and it's indicative really of the process that happens with with science. When properly practiced, science holds knowledge tentatively, acknowledging that new evidence might be discovered at any time that would make previous scientific theories, or even scientific laws, invalid. As an example of this, let's look at the early Greek view of the Sun moving around the Earth, the heliocentric view. Copernicus postulated, and later Galileo made observations with his telescope, producing evidence that, in fact, the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around, as previously held as an obvious truth. Now, obviously, Galileo got into a lot of trouble with the church over that, because it was really fundamental to the Aristotelian worldview that the earth was at the center. It was not a a church idea in the first place, it was actually Aristotle's idea, But the church had adopted this Aristotelian worldview as its own, and that's where the problem came from. So this was an example of broadening the human perspective and looking at traditionally held ideas from a larger frame of reference and working with more information. Now a similar thought revolution or paradigm shift occurred when we moved from Newtonian physics to relativity theory. I'm not going to go off into a side lecture on relativity here, but suffice it to say that scientific concepts like gravity, time, and space itself, which we thought were fairly well understood, all got turned upside down in the process. And in the same way, no one can honestly claim to have God himself or all of Christianity completely and totally figured out. Certainly Jesus himself presented a paradigm shift to the theology of the Pharisees. He was not what they were expecting in a Messiah. And as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 reads, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I'm known. Now, while Paul's words here were meant to apply to our knowledge and understanding of God, I believe they also serve as a worthy metaphor for our knowledge and understanding of God's creation as well, reminding us that our access to full truth is tempered in this life by incomplete knowledge, limited understanding, and less-than-perfect interpretation of the data that we do have. This should lead us to practice our disciplines in science with healthy amounts of modesty, humility, and even skepticism. And on a personal level, as I go through life and do more research and investigations of my own, I continually revise my own understanding of various passages of Scripture as well as my understandings of nature. And consider these thoughts from a couple of prominent scientists on how science and religion fit together. Albert Einstein, author of Relativity Theory in 1941, wrote, Religion without science is blind. Science without religion is lame. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. What a great attitude for a scientist, exploring God's creation. And this next more recent quote is from a fellow ASA member, chemist Fritz Schaefer. He writes, The significance and joy in my science comes in the occasional moments of discovering something new and saying to myself, so that's how God did it. My goal is to understand a little corner of God's plan. I love that. A recent American Association for the Advancement of Science survey asked scientists whether they agreed with these two statements. Okay, so I'm going to read these for you. I believe in a God in intellectual and emotional communication with humankind, i.e., a God to whom one may pray in expectation of receiving an answer. By answer, I mean more than the subjective psychological effect of prayer. And the second statement was, I believe in continuation of the person after death into another world. Both of these statements are very theistic. They indicate belief in a personal God. Now, just before I have put the percentage of people that were in agreement with that, I want you to think to yourself, What percentage of scientists do you think would agree with those two statements? And somebody who's not too shy, raise your hand and tell me what you... But another study, actually, that was quite interesting, came out of a study that was done by a professor at Rice University more recently, and she asked scientists in the United States how many would self-identify as Christian, and that percentage was even higher, it was 61%. Of practicing scientists in the united states self-identify as christian i thought that was just really encouraging because we tend to get from the media this perspective that the you know science and faith are at opposite ends of the spectrum and that is just not true so anyway i was very encouraged by not just this one but the other study as well now billy graham who sometimes is considered the patron saint of modern evangelicals, makes some possibly surprising statements on the topic of science and religion. So he says, the Bible is not a book of science, the Bible is a book of redemption, and of course I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe God created humanity. Whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create humanity. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what men and women are and their relationship to God. So in other words, he's basically saying that the Bible is not a book of science, it's a book of theology, a book of redemption. You know, and if you think back on it, if you think if God had inspired the original writers of scripture to write in terms of modern science or what we consider modern science today. And they made mention of things like dark matter and dark energy and relativity. It would have just sounded like nonsense and maybe even worse than that, kind of scary and spooky. So God inspired the writers of scripture to write in language that would be meaningful throughout the generations. Again, it's a, a message of redemption. So as I try to convey to my students, science is a tool for discovering God's creativity and wisdom in the wonders of his creation. Now, in the current scientific marketplace of ideas, the touchpoint for dialogue between science and theology often comes down to a discussion of probabilities. With theists, like myself, pointing to the telos, or purposeful design in nature, and the unlikelihood of all this coming together just by random chance. And atheists, on the other hand, trying to improve the odds of providing, by providing more chances to get everything all just right. Now, the teleological argument is of particular interest in this discussion. It's perhaps the most commonly discussed argument for God's existence in today's science and technology-oriented society. And the teleological argument has been associated with great thinkers all the way back to Plato and William Paley. And this argument claims that the design and the order that we observe in nature point to a purposeful creator who
0: put it all there for a reason. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoy Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share this website with your family, your friends and your church. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers.